Oh, your mic, your microphone sounds amazing, by the way. It's a Rode MP1A. So, and I've got a sound didn't room here that I that I made. So, let's see. Yeah, I can tell that your experience is podcasting because that's <laughs> by far the best microphone I've ever uh, heard on the show. Yeah, the um, well, there's a longer story behind it, but um, I really wanted. I wanted to be able to podcast at the lower end of my voice in a very sure. gentle kind of way because yeah. my thought was I am podcasting to people who are in spiritual burn units and mm -hmm. they're not needing an argument. They aren't needing, they're needing to understand something. They're not needing to be attacked or made to feel stupid. Um, right. So just a gentle kind of pastoral voice. I'm kind of communicating high-end academic stuff, attempting to do it through a gentle, gentle, more pastoral writing style and speaking style, you might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's wonderful. I, I definitely think it's coming through in the sound. So I'm a little bit jealous of your <laughs> of your setup. <laughs> I, I need to get a microphone. Well, and also it. when I uh, when I did preaching, preaching is often done from the top of your voice. As, you, yeah. as if you were talking to somebody across the room. And this didn't need right. to be that way. This needed to be like we're sitting together talking to each other and I'm not having to yell at you. I'm not having to raise right. my voice to, I'm not talking to you from across the room. I'm just right. sitting down next to you and we're having a conversation. Sure. Which is why I like, this is yeah. one of the reasons I really yeah. enjoy the podcasting format, the format, the platform. And you have a non-hurried non-anxious gentle style which i appreciate mm, thank you yeah no yeah. i do think it's it's conducive like you said to a much more conversational like friendly kind of exchange and yeah and we just get the benefit of people get to kind of listen in on yeah listen, listen in on that so the sermon on the mount i think is interesting in that jesus preaches to his disciples but the crowds overhear it so he didn't right. say, hey, everybody, I fed you. So now I need to come over here and sit down and shut up because I've got a, I've got this uh, sermon. And so he, he didn't yell the sermon on the mount at the 5,000 people. Right. He gathered his disciples together and then he talked to them. And the people came up. Of course, Monty Python did a brilliant parody of that. <laughs> Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since i've seen monty python that's funny hello and welcome to the theology mill podcast brought to you by whipfinstock publishers my name is Zach Mickle, and I am on staff here at Whippenstock, um, and I'm also the host of this podcast, which consists of interviews with leading authors and thinkers in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, please also come on by our website at whippenstock.com to see what we have going on there as well. So on this first of two episodes with Whippenstock author David Artman, he and I begin a conversation on the topic of Christian universalism. And it's a conversation which we will actually continue in a subsequent episode, which will be released in a couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for that. Um, David is the author of a book called Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism, um, which was released with us at Whippenstock in 2020. Um, as well as he's also the host of a podcast under the same name, Grace Saves All. Um, which is really excellent, and it's um, a podcast in which he interviews a number of prominent theologians and other thinkers um, on all kinds of things related to Christian universalism. So with that, thank you very much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, 
I am here with David Artman, who is the author of uh, the 2020 book, Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism, which was published with us at Whippenstock, um, and came with uh, glowing endorsements from um, none less than uh, David Bentley Hart, uh, Brad, how do you say his last name, Bradley? Uh, Brad Jerzak. Jerzak, okay. Tom, uh, Tom Talbot as well. Um, but you're also, you're, you're a experienced podcaster yourself. You have a podcast called Grace Saves All as well. And you have something like 120 episodes up already. Isn't that right? Yeah. My goal was to, uh, well, actually Whippenstock said that if you're going to write a book, you need to do something to publicize your book and a podcast is a good thing to do. And I'd wanted to do a podcast. So in the first 30 or so episodes of the podcast, I put out the basic contents of the book and just sort of talking through it kind of style. And then I started to do interviews with the people that I'd mentioned in the book and then other scholars. And then here I am now, 120 podcasts later. I think the latest latest stats I got on the podcast is there's about 12,000 people or so that are listening in monthly. Wow, that's so, amazing. Um, yeah, I, what that tells me, and I'm not, I, I haven't done any advertising yet, what that tells me is, since I'm not a famous author like David Bentley Hart, what that tells me is that people aren't finding me because of me. They're finding me because of interest in the topic. And because my podcast is the basically the reference now for this topic online, they find it pretty quickly. And uh, so it's it's uh, really been very gratifying and a wonderful experience. Yeah, that's amazing. No, yeah, it does seem to be even we've had a couple episodes on our podcast that were um, not specifically about universalism, but where we featured guests who were kind of in that stream or close to that stream. And those are by far <laughs> our most listened to episodes. So it does it does well, seem that, like there's a real yeah, that, a real organic interest in it for sure. Well, that was why I wanted to publish with Whippenstock and why I was so pleased uh, that my submission to Whippenstock was accepted because a lot of the authors that I most admire and scholars that I most admire on this topic have been published by Whippenstock either in their first edition or the second edition of their book, like Robin Perry and Thomas Talbot, the second mm -hmm. editions of their books were mm -hmm. both with Whippenstock. They wrote the other people first, but to me, Whippenstock, I just love and so appreciate and admire what Whippenstock is doing as a company and that they have, and of course, Robin Perry now works with Whippenstock. And, and so mm -hmm. they have just published um, a lot of the titles that I will try to encourage people to look at are going to be Whippenstock titles. So I'm very grateful sure. to Whippenstock. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, we've, we've been very fortunate to acquire some really amazing titles uh, in, in sort of the universalist uh, uh, stream of things. And I think, yeah, like you said, Robin Perry has had no uh, small part to play in that for sure. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. So let's actually begin with um, a topic not necessarily related to universalism. And it's actually, it's a question I, I did not send in my um, notes to you. So uh, you'll have to go, <laughs> you'll have to shoot from the hip but take your time um okay. okay which is which is uh if you if you um could have access to the private journals of three thinkers uh who would you choose and what would you be hoping to uncover in their journals well i, I think i'll start with carl bart because i think that his theology leads so clearly to a universalist conclusion that that the way that he the various sort of the ways that he demurred from that um are not very convincing to me mm -hmm. and so i would be interested to i guess i'd be more interested if i could just sit down with him and say listen come on i mean <laughs> follow your follow the logic of your argument all the way through you're uh your um so uh Carl Bart, um I guess the private journals of, of Carl Bart, um Jurgen Moltmann, he's he's ninety-five. Mm -hmm. Or you know, he's not really publicly accessible anymore. But his theological work um 
was uh, really important to me as I was thinking about uh, eschatology. Mm. And uh, I'd really like to talk with him. And then I'd, I'd like to sit down and talk with Hans Ernst von Balthasar because he and he and Bart were in many ways saying a lot of the same types of things. And mm -hmm. I'd like to have access to, you know, it really, if I could, I'd like to sit down with Jürgen Moltmann, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Karl Bart, mm. and say, okay, guys, let's, <laughs> let's talk this through. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that they had to be, to me, in my way of thinking, they had to be a little more hesitant than in the current um, environment that we're in. It, it, to my way of thinking, David Bentley Hart has just dropped a theological bombshell in his mm -hmm. uh, book, That Shall All Be Saved. And I haven't seen anybody even mount a credible critique of it. Mm -hmm. So I think we are kind of in some different, I think we're in a different world now, and I'm, I'm hoping more people will be willing to just go ahead and move through really what their deepest theological convictions lead them to. Yeah. No, yeah, that would be a fascinating conversation to to witness. And, and I think, I mean, I think Balthazar was a little bit more courageous in venturing out towards universalism, you know, in that direction at least than, than Bart perhaps. But Moltmann is sort of yeah. a, would be, I think in some ways would be sort of a black sheep of the group because his, you his know, maybe, theological you know, convictions, his Hegelianism, like it is very, very, very different yeah. theological style than the other two. So it'd be really interesting. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll switch out since Moltmann's still alive. Maybe I'll switch out C.S. Lewis. Okay. Well, and I'd okay. want George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis, yeah. George MacDonald. Uh, now that I think about it, it would be interesting. Yeah. I really like to, instead of reading, reading their private journals, I'd really like to sort of put them together. Yeah. <laughs> and to just listen to them talk yeah, and ask yeah. questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it'd be reading their correspondences as well. That would be, that yeah. would be interesting too. Yeah. C.S. Yeah. Lewis would be great. He, sort of uh, like a version of the, a version of a theological version of the Inklings. Yeah. There like you that. go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit about what uh, kind of tradition you grew up in. Um, and then what, what sorts of traditions you've been a part of as an adult? Now, now, before we get to that question, I am a little disappointed because I've listened to all your episodes and you always ask people what they're drinking. I know. I know. We, I mean, we can do it if Which, you want to. I don't, I don't well, have anything I'm, with me, but we can if you want to. Okay. Well, let me ask you the question then. If you were drinking absolutely anything that you could drink, <laughs> like the best, like imagine for me, like your wow. best coffee or, or tea, whatever experience it would be, what would it be? Oh man. Uh, that's an amazing question. Um, wow. It's fun to interview someone who, who podcasts themselves. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, it's, it's what, not even 10 AM where I'm at, but, <laughs> but I think my favorite sort of drink to like sit down over a conversation is a white Russian actually. <laughs> I mean, definitely not this time of day, but if, but if it's in the evening uh -huh. and I'm, and I'm talking theology with a buddy, uh, I would want to well, make you're the, some, you're some you're white the, Russians you're the dude. for both of us. You're the, du you're the dude. That's right. You're the dude That's from Big right. Lebowski. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I actually keep the, uh, I keep the cream on top so I don't mix it up like he does. Uh, just because okay. I like the texture of the cream on top, I think is just absolutely delicious. But I have a friend yeah, who really, yeah. Well, he he oh, mixes. I was just it gonna up. say that's how the how, how the big Go Lebowski ahead. starts is he goes to that grocery store and he's got to get cream for his white Russians because he's out. And he yeah. writes a check for like sixty three cents or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He, well, he's kind of drinking them the whole movie, isn't he? If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, the only time, you know, because the dude, he is so relaxed and chill. He doesn't really get mad at anybody. He yeah. only gets mad when they when they jostle him, and he says, "Careful, man! There's a drink involved here." So <laughs> you can mess with lots of things, but don't mess with his rug or his white Russian. Yeah, that's right. That's right. His rug. Yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing movie. Okay, well, I'm assuming you must have you must have some kind of drink on hand then. So let's go ahead and tell you know tell us about what you're drinking. 
Okay, I think I'm going to win most exotic drink. Uh, and 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 how I came to this drink is a little bit of a story, but this, I call it my morning concoction. It's a packet of English breakfast decaf tea, steeped in a mixture of hot water and almond milk, sweetened mm-hmm. with madhava, organic light agave, organic stevia, with a bit of really nice cocoa powder called Wonder Cocoa thrown in for fun. So it's sort of a light mocha latte made with tea instead of coffee. Okay. Yeah. No, that that sounds very interesting. I was not expecting the splash of cocoa. I would be very curious to taste that. Well, it looks horrible, but it tastes great. (laughs) I feel like (laughs) it looks like mud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, I feel like I'm breaking tea... some some I feel like I'm I'm breaking some rule by putting cocoa in tea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of that before. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Well, sure it started out because I really I really used I used to enjoy uh, drinking. Um, I had to give up caffeine because it was affecting my sleep at night. Yeah, and yeah. so I went to, but I really liked my latte in the morning. So instead of putting, making my latte with coffee, like I did, I just started making it with tea and, um, and, you know, so it probably only tastes good and makes sense to me, but that's my, that's my drink. That's how you know you like a drink though, is when you, when you, uh, (laughs) can't have the caffeine, but you buy the decaf version. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, it's just totally gratuitous to buy, unless it's like herbal tea or something that you drink at night that helps you go to sleep. It's just yeah. totally gratuitous. Well, also, I, I do, uh, I'm a connoisseur of uh, IPA non-alcoholic beers. Okay. <laughs> and uh, they're really good. The, the yeah. They've made a lot of advancements in non-alcoholic beer. It's really good yeah. now. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I'm yeah, off, I'm of, I'm off a... of, I'm off of, I'm off of alcohol and caffeine, and I'm on to Christian universalism. That's my drug of choice. <laughs> Sounds like a good transition. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that we've got the drinks out of the way, let's uh, okay. T- tell me a bit about you know, like I said, the traditions you grew up in and the tradition you're you're a part of now, or that you've been a part of as an adult. Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't grow up going to church, but I, um, my parents were both had both been raised in church, but for various reasons were sort of out of church going mode when I was coming up and we have, I happened to, because of my dad's work, I grew up in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. And so I'm coming of age during the seventies and, um, and evangelical fundamentalism was just on fire around Mm -hmm. where I was. I didn't know what to call it. For me, it was just Christianity, but it was very intense. It was even like, if you're like an, even an early teenager, you need to get saved or you're going to hell forever. And, mm-hmm. you know, every eye closed, every head bowed. If you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, raise your hand, come up to the front, you know, and we'll pray with you and you can accept him into your heart. And then you'll know that you're going to go to heaven. And there was a lot of that late great planet Earth had come out. People thought the world was ending. Uh, it was, I mean, even in the high school where I grew up, you know, people were having you know, dramatic conversion experiences, you know, like, one day they, there would be, you know, kind of like the, a little bit of the wild kid. And then the next day they'd have their haircut carrying a Bible, you know, and just these, just these dramatic sort of like you're in or you're out. And if you're in church and you are there every Sunday, every Wednesday, you're sort of, you know, everything was just very kind of extreme. And growing up around that, you didn't question the Bible or you didn't question the, the things that the people said at the church, you either agreed with it or you didn't agree with it. And anyway, I ended up not agreeing with it. So I thought mm-hmm. I was kind of out of Christianity. When I'm in college, I go through a, a, a difficult period in my life and I start thinking, I do need some spirituality. I run into the writings of C.S. Lewis. I realized that there is a more intellectual, thoughtful, gentle side of the Christian faith. A friend of mine recommends that I try First Christian Church in Lubbock, Texas. I was at Texas Tech. And um, the Christian Church, First Christian, it's called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ is the denomination. And part of the history of the church is that it rejected creeds as tests of fellowship. So it encouraged every person to be a member of the church, to follow Jesus, 
as their Lord and Savior to the best of their understanding, and then to work out their theology over the course of their lifetime, mm-hmm. understanding that that's that that's a that that's a lifetime project that will probably take lots of twists and turns. So they wanted to leave plenty of room for people to ask and to question and to have real conversations and maybe even adjust their theological position over the course of their lifetime. So that was really, really wonderful. And then when I went, I was the minister there encouraged me to go to seminary. I went to Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas, and that was the same kind of experience. They didn't they said, we're here to teach you how to, how to think, but not what to think. And so they opened the whole theological spectrum to us. Um, there wasn't any real push to, you know, con- for conformity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was a minister in the Christian church for a little over 30 years. I recently retired. Um, but over that whole time, my job was to help people to grow spiritually, to follow Jesus to their best of understanding. But my job was not to finally be uh, some kind of cult leader that could tell them the right theological answer to every question, that I, too, was on a spiritual journey trying to follow Jesus to the best of my understanding, and that I would try to share with the congregation the best that I could, but that but that I should not be a substitute for their own relationship or their own best understanding of, you know, how they understand mm-hmm. God and how they ultimately follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I was really fortunate to be in a church environment that encouraged a lot of scholarship and critical thinking. And um, I recently uh, retired from pastoral ministry and uh, uh, I've been enjoying uh, visiting some other types of churches. And I really, really enjoy the Episcopal church. It is a broad thinking, intellectual uh, expression of the Christian faith. And um I haven't been around high liturgy very much in my life. The church, mm-hmm. the Christian Church Disciples of Christ has communion every Sunday, but it's sort of a, a strip, you might call it a stripped down, not very liturgical thing. And so I'm enjoying the very kind of the high liturgy of the Episcopal Church and and um, and that form of, of worship. I, just, I tell people that I enjoy intelligent and generous expressions of the Christian faith that leave room for honest dialogue and expression that aren't Mm -hmm. overly, you know, judgmental in their approach to people and, you know, have a real emphasis on grace. So Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty comfortable wherever I find something like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for sharing that all. That's very, yeah, very interesting background. So then, you know, as you're, as you're kind of journeying, um, you know, having your own spiritual journey. How did how did you end up discovering Christian universalism? Where where did this sort of pop down into your life? Well, it's a humbling story for me because I was fifty years old. I'd been in ministry, been through seminary. I even did a doctor of ministry paper on the topic of hell back in the mid nineties, and I'd even oh, wow, looked okay. at Christian universalism during that time. At that time, the main kind of proponents were folks like John Hick. And it was more of a pluralistic sort of approach to universalism, mm-hmm. um, not dis- not necessarily distinctively Christian. But I was aware that there were some Christian arguments for it. But at that time, I just wasn't I wasn't persuaded. I, uh, but anyway, so I thought that the matter was settled. I was fine with the C.S. Lewis vision of God, where God mm-hmm. saves everybody that is savable. It's just that there might be some people who exercise the free will that God gives them. And God finally has no choice but to let them exercise that free will finally to their own demise, even though God never gives up on them. They finally just refuse God ad infinitum to at some point out in eternity that part of them which can make a decision finally disappears. And I thought I was I thought I was satisfied with that as a theological answer. And but in in my church, I'd always said to people, you know, I am not alone wise. And if you ever want, I love talking about theology. If you want to talk about theology, let's talk and share ideas. And it's not a problem if if we have, you know, some different ideas or opinions. And uh, so one of the, essentially kind of what happened is one of the folks that had been, um, he wasn't a member of the church at the time yet, but he was thinking about it. And I told him about, you know, my openness to discussing theology. And he said, well, let's talk about Christian universalism. I've become convinced of that. What do you think about it? And 
And that began a conversation and he brought some arguments to my attention that I thought were good ones and some, um, and so it was around 2011 in uh, Rob Bell's book, I think it had come out or was coming out. The topic of Christian universalism was kind of in the air. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so what I did was I just got online and back in 1995, when I did my D-Men paper on Christian, on, on the doctrine of hell, there was no internet. 1995, mm-hmm. no internet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here I am in 2011. And I just get on Google and Amazon and just start looking at what books have been recently written about Christian universalism. Well, up comes Thomas Talbot's Inescapable Love of God, Robin Perry's Evangelical Universalist, uh, Brad mm-hmm. uh, Jerzak's Her Gates uh, Will Never Be Shut, and other other publications. And what's interesting is all of these titles are being written by people with backgrounds in evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was just stunned that that it seemed like there were some really, really good arguments coming out for Christian universalism from people with evangelical backgrounds. And then I became aware of um, David Bentley Hart, and he's writing from an Eastern Orthodox position. And his writing was kind of like a bombshell for me. He really mm-hmm. exposed uh, some incoherence, some moral and philosophical incoherence that I had in my theological position that I didn't realize. But he just made it absolutely clear that I did have some unresolved issues in my theology. Mm-hmm. And then he made me aware that within the Eastern Orthodox tradition that there was much more sympathy for this. And then scholars like Alaria Ramelli reading her on on how much sympathy you can find for Christian universalist Christian universalism in the early church fathers. It, mm-hmm. If if you know how to read them in the original Greek, and if you understand the various controversies that were sort of flying around about the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, all of that combined together that by 2015, I had become convinced of the Christian universalist position. But I didn't, I wasn't sure how I could ever explain myself to sort of the average person. And mm-hmm. that's when I started thinking, I need to write something that's that's accessible, concise. That's not written with too much theological jargon that uses terms that people are familiar with so that they can at least get an, they can at least, I can give them a resource that can help them to uh, at least enter into the world that I find myself in and get a feeling for it. And hopefully they will come away saying, well, you know, that's a lot more Christian than I thought it was. Or they might even say, huh, you know, that might be a Christianity that I could hold on to. Let me find out more about it. And then I uh, have a, a um, resources at the end of the book. I don't just list other books that you can look at. I list the books, plus I give a paragraph or two about the book and how it could help you maybe fill in some more information about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that's a really great project. Um, yeah, like, not 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 everyone like you're saying not everyone is going to want to read or or be able or have sort of the the uh i don't know the training to be able to read someone like dbh or Ilaria romelli so i think that your book yeah uh fills a real need and there's i mean like you've said there's a lot of a lot of interests and a lot of people trying to hang on to their faith and trying to reconcile you know how many loved ones that you know dealing with you know the the weight of their loved one's existence who who are um who are not believers so i, I get think that that's yeah well i get people i get a number of emails now i get emails every week from evangelical people evangelical backgrounds yeah. they're wondering if they can remain christian right. and finding i mean they're they're sort of on their way out of christianity yeah. and then they find yeah. Christian universalism, and it saves their faith. And they are happier in their Christianity than they've ever been. And they want to share it with other people. And so what they do, I think one of the reasons that my podcast is getting attention is they recommend my podcast to other people. So take a listen to this and uh, see if this might, uh, see if this might work for you. I just recently talked to a guy who said, he has a friend, he's at a conservative Christian University. He reached out to me through, you know, sent me an email and he said he's at this really conservative Christian school thinking about this. And some of his friends are too. 
and that he has a friend who uh, had grown up in a strict Calvinist church and a young young woman, a nurse who left the faith. And he sent her, uh, you know, a podcast episode and she listened to it and got back to him. It was really excited. You know, mm. like, I didn't mm. know. Yeah. I didn't know this way of being Christian existed. If I had known this, maybe I wouldn't have left. Maybe I can even come back now. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know this. So that's been yeah. really, that's been really gratifying for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's really wonderful. Um, what, what, I mean, what, what was it about Christian universalism that sort of first attracted you or compelled you? What, what, uh, what sort of, what were the arguments that kind of caught your attention? Well, I've, I've found, uh, well, first of all, the the sort of the gentle and uh, relentless logic of Thomas Talbot in his book, mm-hmm. The Inescapable Love of God, and just the way he sort of analyzed things. Um, and then the writing of David Bentley Hart. I think what happened was I realized that I had a I had a I had a problem in my own theology in a way because I realized I was believing that that God gives grace to all. And I'd also started saying from the pulpit uh, that we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace alone because I didn't want spiritual growth to be some kind of burden that people carried and tear that they were going to mess it up and be finally cast off by God forever because they didn't grow spiritually enough the right way or they made mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to say, I started saying that salvation was by grace and the response to our salvation by grace is a joyful growth into the into the ever-increasing awareness of just how good God is. So I found myself saying all these things. So essentially, in my theology, I was saying salvation is by grace alone. God gives grace to all, yet it is possible that some may not be saved. Hmm. Well, when I looked at that, or when David Bentley Hart, after David Bentley Hart and Thomas Talbot, after reading them and thinking about it, I realized I had logical inconsistency there because something something has to give. If grace alone saves, and if grace goes to all, then all will be saved. So if I was going to maintain that grace goes to all and some might not be saved, then I was going to have to give up the idea that salvation was by grace alone. And I'd become pretty attached to that idea. So... I think it was working through all that. It was it was also as reading through uh, like Alaria Romelli's work and uh, mm-hmm. Robin Perry's work. Um, he's got the, the Larger Hope series or a Larger Hope with he and yeah. Alaria Romelli work through together. Just mm-hmm. realizing how many people down through the history of the church had been thinking about this uh, in the early centuries of the church, in the 1800s and 1900s and up into the 20th century just realizing that this was kind of a theme that had been running for a long time in the history of the Christian faith, that it had been almost extinguished during the Middle Ages, when I think the church was in its darkest moments. Um, But I can understand historically why that would have happened. And so Mm -hmm. it didn't make me think that somehow the judgment of the medieval church was correct in dismissing or trying to dismiss the, a universalist hope, but that it was subject to the to the problems of its age and the emperor running the church and the pressures that they were trying to have to find conformity in law and in religion in the Roman Empire, and the and the sense that uh, that it was necessary that there there was necessary just to keep order and control in society that there was sort of ultimate some sort of ultimate threat from God if people got out of line too far. Mm-hmm. So I could kind of understand how all of that happened. And once I got that whole story, I realized that this was a thread, an ancient thread of Christian theology that had really just kind of gotten lost over the history of the Western church, but that now was possible to revive and needed to be revived. I think if Christianity is going to make a plausible case for its God truly being good uh, going forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's something that a lot of people, a lot of um, Christians don't know either. The sort of historical background, um, the kind of universalist mm-hmm. stream that runs through the tradition. It's certainly something I didn't know until I started to discover uh, David Bentley Hart's work. 
um, and started to read the Church Fathers. Um, but I mean, who who would you say are some of the sort of most important historic figures who have kind of leaned in this direction? Uh, well, I always like to tell people when somebody asks me that, I say, well, look at, consider the example of Gregory of Nyssa. You know, he was named mm-hmm. father of the fathers by the Seventh Council, Ecumenical Council, I think in 787. He participated in the formation of the Nicene Creed. He himself wrote against heresies in his day, and he was and he held to a strong idea that God would ultimately restore everybody and everything, and mm-hmm. that's very clear in his writings. So, it was very possible for people in the early centuries of the church to hold the idea that there would be an ultimate restoration of all human beings, even of all created beings, uh, finally. And to consider themselves to be within an orthodox expression, they could say the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. You know, heck, they could even write the Apost- the Nicene Creed yeah. and yeah. be a universalist. So um, I think even though Origen is a, is a controversial, became a controversial name in the history of the church, but during his time, the, the, the bounds of Christian thought were not established, and he was— he felt free to be very philosophically speculative Mm -hmm. and he was, Mm -hmm. but if you, you know, as a friend of mine once said, you know, what's the, what's the headline from 30,000 feet here? Well, the headline is the first and greatest scholar and theologian of the Christian faith origin of Alexandria. When he wrote his theology, it was clearly a universalist, Construal, where mm-hmm. the goodness of God that is in the beginning is finally resonates clearly and perfectly through all of a restored creation at the end of the ages, and God is all in all as first as He thought He understood First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think to really realize how that uh, that origin was extremely influential in the early centuries of the church. Uh, and his thoughts, people really disagreed with, agreed with them or disagreed with them. Um, ultimately, you know, it was Augustine um, who disagreed with him. But even Augustine, he wrote in his Enchiridion on Christian faith, his handbook, that during his day, that the majority of believers did not believe that that the that the torments of God would last forever, that God would have mercy, and he even said they're not they're not even trying to go against the Bible. Uh, but, um, so just realizing that there was a lot of recognition, there were some early church figures, um, and even even after Origen fell out of favor, uh, look at to look to, to the writings of somebody like. Uh, Maximus Confessor, mm-hmm. and his view of that, that that all of creation in the in the incarnation of Christ, that God had taken on the creation in such a way, become united to the creation in such a way that it would ultimately not just be saved, but deified. I mean, mm-hmm. people were having big thoughts about all of this as as much as they could, sometimes they would, they would make caveats in their writings to, um, so that may, maybe they wouldn't get in trouble, but there were, there's a lot of folks that would be kind of like a Carl Bart figure that had all kinds of beautiful statements in it. Then they may have some other statements that were cautionary, but -hmm. you could see that there was a lot of thinking that was going on about, especially the understanding that Christ that the gospel was the good news that Christ had defeated on behalf of all of humanity, the powers of sin and death. So Hmm. there, that's the gospel. Okay. And as they worked all that out, the only question was how successful is Jesus going to be in defeating the power of sin and death in creation? And you can make a pretty good argument that there's no reason to think that he can't be completely successful at that. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if that was God's intent from the beginning. So, just finding out that there were like there were some that were outright universalists, and then there were some that might not have been outright universalists, um, like Irenaeus in his recapitulation ideas might not have been 
uh, a universalist, but his thinking was so beautiful that you could take his thinking and it would fit into a universalist scheme really easily. So yeah, I guess once I was just seeing all of that, like, oh, I could, if I look at early church fathers, I can look at the clearly universalist ones and I can even look at the non-universalist ones and find some really beautiful stuff there. And so I don't need to even go, I don't even need to go to modern theologians to put together mm-hmm. a Christian yeah. universalist theology. I can construct it completely from early church fathers with no problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's very interesting, like uncovering, uh, sort of, the, um, uh, these threads that are consistent with like a kind of Nicene orthodoxy, um, mm-hmm. which, which I think has been <laughs> surprising to me. Um, uh, uh, in other words, like people, you know, people, like you said, like, uh, Gregory of Nyssa or, or, you know, more yeah. contemporary f- figures like Karl Barth or Juan Balthasar, yeah. who by and large, we, we think like, okay, that was like a, a solidly orthodox, you know, uh, theologian defending sort of, um, uh, you know, historic, uh, uh, fundamentals of the faith, I guess. If mm-hmm. you want to put it, that's that's maybe not the best way to put it, but um, yeah. But well, they were I think, they were staying within what they considered to be the historic core of the Christian faith. That's right. And they were yeah. even and they were even they were even writing against heresies that they thought yeah. needed to be opposed, but they held a universalist theology themselves. Right. Right. Yeah, but but I think that this is um, a bit surprising uh, for people because I like I when I um, when I've had conversations with people about universalism and I'm not nearly as as informed about these things as you are or some of the other people you've mentioned, but um, I think one of the most common like misconceptions that comes up um, is that uh, when people hear universalism, I think they sort of associate it with like uh like unitarian universal like literally like right. the denomination like that sort of style of thinking um mm-hmm. uh and so for them it's you know it smacks of even t- any talk of universalism sort of smacks of like uh you know uh the project of like classical liberalism and the way that mm-hmm. that tainted christianity and modernity but and then the way that that's been like now linked yeah. up with kind of this ideologically oriented like uh, kind of wokeness that that uh that maybe is is not as as uh, theologically sophisticated as people would like yeah. um but i think it's been helpful for me and um i think could be helpful for others and i'm sure you've seen this a lot um sort of disentangling some of those um some of those movements in people's minds. Um, but, but I, I don't know if you've encountered this, I've encountered where people like literally, <laughs> they don't, they like, don't believe me that there's uh <laughs> that there's like a historic thread right. um, that leans towards universalism among, you know, uh, Orthodox uh, theologians. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a something they are surprised to find that they didn't know about. Right. Um, but just to go back to, you know, you know, that, that people think you mentioned universalism, people all sort of a knee jerk. Oh, that's that's wokeness. That's progressivism. That's yeah. going to be an associated with the rejection of the miraculous It's probably right. associated with the rejection of the virgin birth or right. uh, a resurrection. You know, it's going to be part of demythology, some kind of project to completely demythologize the New Testament and end up in some kind of pluralistic place where Christianity is just one religion among many that are all equally valid paths to God. And and yeah, what's funny yeah. is I told you earlier, you know, that I, the seminary that I went to, uh, they didn't, you know, place any boundaries on on theological thinking. And it was a pretty progressive environment, even though they didn't force anybody to be progressive. That was kind of the, that yeah. was kind of the atmosphere. But right. a lot of my minister friends think of me my Christian universalism as being quite conservative. Uh, mm. They think that it's a bit narrow of me to suggest that finally all salvation comes only through Jesus. 
Yeah. That yeah. if Muslim people or Hindu people or Buddhist people want salvation, they have to finally in the ages, even in the ages to come, if they want it, they finally have to come through Jesus. They find yeah. that they find that kind of offensive. And then my uh, my Christian friends who are more in the uh, process theology or open theism camp mm -hmm. uh, think the idea that, oh, it's already determined from the beginning that God will be all in all. And so uh, that they don't like that idea. They like the idea that 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 creation is an open-ended adventure that God is on, and that we are on too, and that God is trying to help us. But not even God knows the outcome of all things. And so, and that's important because our decision to finally unite with God needs to be finally a free one. And so, you're saying that yeah. it's already all predetermined. And so, uh, I think I have I think I have different ways of thinking through the free will argument. Um, and I think I have my own reasons for wanting to affirm a Trinitarian Orthodox construal of the Christian faith, which fits within the Apostles and Nicene creeds as part of an affirmation of historic Christian Orthodoxy, and to make the case that I can argue for a, a, a Christian universalism that's Trinitarian and Orthodox. Um, yeah. uh, but when I'm doing all of this, I'm appearing as a conservative to my progressive friends. Mm -hmm. And their their kind of their their attitude toward me is, well, not all of them, but some of them is, well, that's, you know, David, I'm I'm glad that you're doing this. Um, and I'm glad that you're finding some evangelicals that seem to really enjoy it, but still seems mm -hmm. a little narrow. Right. Uh, I just think it's funny, you know, that for some people would look at me as a Christian universalist and think, oh, oh, I must be woke and liberal. Yeah. But my actual experience is that my woke and liberal friends think I'm conservative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that sort of the trap that some of the great 20th century theologians fell into, though, like Karl Barth and, and Balthazar de Lubach, where <laughs> basically both sides thought they were too much of the wrong thing and they sort of couldn't please anybody? Well, in a way, I think it's funny that, that in a way, they, I think to all of those figures to me, I don't know as much about the Lubai, but what they did was they tried not to they tried not to fully identify with the Christian universalist position, like a David Bentley Hart. They didn't go that far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could say they hedged their bets or they they allowed themselves some wiggle room, but it was exactly that wiggle room that people then didn't like. You know mm -hmm. that in a way, I don't know how many problems it actually solved for them. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, so it, what I found out is that is that you might as well, in your own theological journey, come to your best understanding of who God is for your own in your own way in your own mind to have your best spiritual journey. And if I, I encourage people to do that through Christ the best way that they can, but ultimately, probably there's going to be very few people that are going to have exactly your experience. So right. that's yep. okay. Just get used to that. You might run into somebody who is having a nearly exactly experience to you. And if that happens, that's either going to be really gratifying or weird. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But that's okay. We're all a little bit different. And um, so just, I always used to tell people that spiritual growth, part of spiritual growth is sharing your faith. And sharing your faith just means giving witness, bearing witness to the best of your understanding of what your experience about who you think God is. And just, mm -hmm. so that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We, we've, we've, uh, we mentioned a, a handful of names that are sort of working in this, in this realm today. Who would you say is kind of uh, maybe one important figure that's kind of active in, in universalist theology today and what's, what's been sort of, um, the advance, like some of the, maybe some of the key advancements they've made in their, in their writing. Well, David Bentley Hart's book, That All Shall Be Saved. Um, and I think that's 2019 Yale, published with Yale. Yeah. Along, yeah. and I think it was shortly after that, around that time, he also released his translation of the New Testament with the uh, footnotes and the, and the glossary of, of terms, disputed terms. That are in the that's in the back of that, yeah. And he's got a second edition out of that now too. But to me, in my world, 
that that was a game changer because what that means it's like for instance if you go to seminary and you're going to and you're going to do theology and you want to do theology um and you're thinking about how does theology relate to social justice issues well you're going to read James Cone's God of the Oppressed you just mm-hmm. have to just yeah. to be you know just to know what you're talking about there's going to be certain yeah. things that you're just going to have to read just just to be an educated person yeah and so i think now that uh i mean at at, at the graduate level nobody's going to have to read my book in order to hold their head up <laughs> but <laughs> You are going to have to have read David Bentley Hart's That All Shall Be Saved, and you're going to have to yeah. know his argument and know how powerful it is, I think, mm-hmm. at this point. Now, prior to that, I think the work of Thomas Talbot was really, really important, but he kind of had to work his way up from obscurity a bit. I mean, the first time he tried to publish Inescapable Love of God, he couldn't find a publisher, and he was kind of working in that area of Christian philosophy, which— yeah is kind of hard for a lot of folks to, you know, understand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then his, his book kind of gained popularity um, because it was really well-written. It was helpful when he came out with the second edition and Wimpenstock published that, that, that kind of bumped it up mm-hmm. a little bit. Uh, but I think that, that the two of them together have really set, um, have really sort of, Set, set an argument that people are going to have to deal with now at the highest levels. If you're going to get theolo- if you're going to be theologically educated and know what the modern discourse is, you're going to have to relate to yeah. probably those authors. And then also Alaria Ramelli's work has just the, her her historical background work is super important. Robin Perry has come along and given us lots of excellent um, evangelical universalists. The a lot of other titles that have helped with the background conversation, to yeah. all of this. So I guess what I'm really pleased to say is that if I can, if I can serve as an, in, in an introductory way for somebody, then I can point you on to really great high level scholarship now that yeah. I think you will yeah. find, you know, very gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for uh, Jordan Wood to write a book about <laughs> universalism because I think that it would be, uh, delightful to read. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's a yes, yes. I've really, had Jordan. Really... I've had yes, I've had Jordan Daniel Wood okay. on the podcast like two or three okay. times now, and yeah. I just recently, I just recently interviewed him on his book, The Whole Mystery of Christ: Creationist, Incarnation, and Maximus Confessor. Yeah, and part of the conversation that I'm having with with Jordan is how it is that it might be possible for somebody to be Catholic and hold um, yeah. universalist. Yeah some universalist ideas and we've had some pretty long conversations about about all that so i'm yeah he's one of the he's one of the scholars um that i'm really excited about also uh, andrew hironich has just published uh once loved always loved the logic of a pocket testesis with whippenstock that just came out and i'm I'm excited about his work uh, as a growing scholar too yeah yeah i think yeah for sure definitely i i think um I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Jordan Wood has that in the cards. If that's if that's something he's planning on doing at all, because I know he's he's very steeped in Maximus studies. But I just think his uh, his sort of his depth of uh, of uh, well, just his grasp of the Greek fathers, you know, um, and just the tradition more broadly, I think is really really impressive. And well, he's he's be. fun. He's fun because he grew up in the independent Christian church. Yeah, we don't need yeah. to go into that too much, but that's a real Bible-based kind of thing. So he went to like a Bible conservative Bible college and learned Greek right. and Hebrew, did a lot of yeah. language studies. Yeah. So he learned that whole side of it. Then he goes to then he goes to Boston College and he learns the early history of the church, which had not been really studied as part of his tradition. Right. And then to me, so he's sort of a little bit of a bridge figure. He understands the world of evangelical kind of Bible-based Christianity. And he also understands the world where you have more of a a tradition, more of a a teaching magisterium in the church Mm -hmm. that looks back to the early church fathers and that tradition is in the councils and all that kind of stuff. So he's able to really bring all of that together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, okay, so what what would you say are some of the biggest critiques that are launched at universalism, particularly critiques that you find? Um, uh, I don't I don't know if difficult to respond to is the right way to put it, but just maybe some of the most trenchant, um, compelling critiques that you have faced or that you've seen other universalists have to face. Uh, well, so far, I have seen no substantial critique to Christian universalism that has uh, made me question the position. I yeah. guess what I would say is that all of the critiques that I have that I have run across um, don't amount to very, don't amount to very much. And I'll get, I'll get to some of them, but, but it's just, what's interesting to me is that people will come up with a critique of, you know, they'll want to critique my Christian universalism. And then I just have to ask them, well, okay, let's get to that. But tell me what your position is. Mm-hmm. Well, usually they're, you know, if they're coming from a Calvinist position, they're going to say, well, you know, I'm going to be able to point out to them before we get to the critique of my position. Am I clear in understanding that, the God you're speaking of makes a creation in which he knows that, that there are going to be people that have zero chance of ever being saved. And then when they fail to respond in faith, because God never granted them even the possibility of responding in faith, that God's going to torment them forever or annihilate them. And let's right. just be clear, that's the picture of God that you're working from. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, that's an enormous problem. I don't yeah. know how you overcome that one. Yeah. Um, and then if they're working from like a, like a more Armenian kind of free will thing, then I can just say, okay, well, we'll get to the critiques of Christian universalism. Let me just be clear. The God you're talking about is a God who is absolutely sovereign, has, has foreknowledge, loves all of his children, wants them all to be saved. And there's nothing that defeats God's sovereign will. So God must have always wanted all of his children to be saved. And, and so, but then he makes a creation in which he knows that not all of them are going to come to a good end. And he plans then on tormenting them forever, knowing that in the creation that he makes, they will never come to know him. And they will be eternally bereft of uh, ever knowing his love for them. And either he will just be satisfied for them to descend into non-existence or actually torment them forever. Uh, that seems incredibly problematic to me. Uh, and, and so I think what happens is sometimes people criticize Christian universalism without realizing the the own their own like inherent horrible problems that they've got. So mm-hmm. then what I want to say is, you know, I'm happy to address these problems of Christian universalism faces, but I think you should be on my side here because if I can't make a defense of this, I really believe we can't make a defense of a Christianity who features a God who is truly good. So right. yeah. I hope that you will kind of be with me in hoping that we can resolve these problems, because if we can't resolve this, if truly a universalist outcome is not possible for the Christian faith, then I think, uh, I don't think we can say that our God is really good, not all good. If we can't say that our God is all good, then we're trying to ask people to believe, to call God a being who is clearly not the greatest being possibly conceivable and or to believe in a God who we're just believing in, who we don't really think is good, but we're just believing in him because we don't want to run afoul of him and get tossed Mm -hmm. into his hell. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people now that are questioning this. And I think the old answers that we put up aren't working for him. So we Mm -hmm. better hope that we can, we better hope that we can work through it. Okay. So, but the questions that people say, well, isn't it a heresy? Ironically, I get this mostly from Protestants, which is funny, <laughs> yeah, because is funny. don't you realize that you're a heretic? The same, <laughs> the same medieval church that raised some questions about Christian universalism thinks you're heretical. You know, mm-hmm. this whole heresy mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and since when are you that concerned about the statements of medieval church councils? I thought that the whole point of Protestantism was it was Scripture alone. So why do you even care what a medieval church council said about anything? Mm-hmm. Okay, but uh, if you if you are concerned about that, just look into the details of the Fifth Ecumenical Council. It had to do something with theological controversies, originism. It was trying to solve what was known historically as the Monophysite controversy mm-hmm. about how many natures 
Christ has. The correct answer, by the way, two. Incorrect answer, one. That was what the Monophysites. And so they were trying to get that worked out. The Pope didn't want to be involved in the controversy, de- declined to come to the council. The emperor was running it. And um, uh, if you look at the official records of the council, the only thing that we have there is that Origen's name is listed um, amongst, uh, inserted at the end of a list of names of heretics. But the actual records of the council don't say what that was for. There were some mm-hmm. imperial anathemas that were probably passed before the council. But there's no evidence that the Pope ever signed off on those things later on. The whole thing was a giant sort of example of how confused and convoluted theological controversies had become mm-hmm. um, at that you know at that point in time. So the heresy the, the heresy concern, I don't think I think I can if you're a Protestant, I don't think you need to worry about it at all because who cares what a medieval church council thinks about it if you were yeah. Orthodox or Catholic, let me point you to Al Kimmel's article at Eclectic Orthodoxy uh, entitled, uh, Did the Fifth Ecumenical Council Condemn Universal Salvation? And, you know, just read through that. And I think you can see that, no, that that just the basic idea that God would eventually save all human beings, that that was never clearly distinguished from a group of other theological controversial ideas that were then kind of all lumped together. So mm-hmm. I, so um, I think the heresy things, I think we can work that out. There's some people say, well, if everybody gets saved, then there's no consequence for sin. And I say, no, that's not what, especially look at the early church fathers that thought about this. They thought that there could be ages and ages of consequence for sin. Or look at George MacDonald. He thought that, you know, he said that the judgments of God could be very severe. And he, he could say things like the the devil must come out every hair and feather. I mean, we must be purified. Look at Gregory of Nyssa and his writings. Yeah, we must be purified. So the idea was, yes, there was consequence for sin. And I could even make the argument that a real consequence for sin is where you truly have to come to a real and true understanding that what you did was wrong. I mean, if yeah. if you just take somebody that's yelling and screaming at you saying you're being unfair and you just kill them, okay, well, okay, you killed them. Uh, but what if they had to go through a process where they really had to recognize and come to terms with what they did, and they had to reconcile with the people that they had hurt? That would be a much more difficult and arduous position, uh, journey to go through. So I would say the consequences of sin in Christian universalism are heightened because there's no getting off. You finally have to face and work through everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people say that it will destroy evangelism. Uh, you know, because like, why would we do evangelize if everybody's ultimately going to make it to heaven anyway, which I think is incredibly ironic, because the reason that we evangelize should be because Jesus is so wonderful and his office of offer of fullness of life and life in God's kingdom now is this wonderful, you know, thing. And that we can pronounce the good news of the gospel, that the powers of sin and death have been defeated. And humanity is now released from that. And we can begin and live in faith in the goodness of this. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to want to. Mm-hmm. Um, to want to, to, and also, this is Christian universalism. When you explain that this Christianity contains this possibility, that's a super powerful form of evangelism. Because all these people that are out there that have decided they're not coming back to the Christian faith, they have rejected some infernalist view of it. So yeah, when you present yeah. a non infernalist Christian universalist position to them, I've had personal experience with this. They say, you know what? I didn't know about that, but I think I could do this. So I don't, I'm not worried about the evangelism. Some people say that it denies free will. And that was a concern that I had. So I really understand that one. David Bentley Hart really helped me to, and, and Thomas Talbot really helped me to work through those problems because I think finally um, that depends on this. What is a free will? Well, a free will is one that is finally not encumbered by any insanity or misunderstanding and if, so if you take a will that is finally cleared, cleared up, it has no misunderstandings, it, it sees everything with perfect clarity, it sees the goodness of God, it sees that it is a child of God created to find happiness and union with God and with everybody else, and it sees this with 100% clarity, it is now completely free. And, um, and so when the truth sets you free and, and you're no longer a slave to sin, 
And so where does a free creature go who is the child of the God of love, who has been created to love that God and to be in full reconciliation with everybody else? Well, you go that direction, but that's not a that's not a denial of your freedom. That's a an expression of your freedom. So I think what God can do amazingly is to give people a huge measure of liberty, but still mm-hmm. create a good free will in them. And if people are, want to go further into that, I would just recommend that that all shall be saved. That I think David Bentley Hart's um, explanation of the incoherence of the libertarian free will argument is irrefutable. So no. I would say that that to use some theological jargon that that libertarian free will becomes incoherent at the eschatological horizon in which everything becomes clear and all is known. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's just not a, uh, I think the free will problem can be handled. Some people say that it, that we can't talk about a Christian universalism because we're entering into the realm of mystery and how can we become a judge of God? And I would just argue that I don't think I'm becoming a judge of God. I think I'm looking at scripture and making a theological interpretation that this is God's intention. I'm not judging God. It seems to me that the intention of God is to be all in all, as in 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, or to, or to Romans eleven thirty two to consign all disobedience that God may have mercy upon all. So to me, uh, or I could read in Lamentations that God, you know, it's, God casts off no one forever. He does cause people guilt, but uh, but it's not God's intention to cast off anyone forever. So I don't think I am putting anything on God. I'm just saying I think that I can see in the character of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus in several places in the New Testament that there is an ultimate ten- intention of God to finally be all in all and to redeem the entire creation. So I think I can. In other words, I haven't run across a single objection to Christian universalism that I found that was uh, that really caused me trouble. There are certain scriptures yeah. that people will throw up to me, mm-hmm. and I think once you look at those scriptures in the original languages and put, set them in their historical context with um, what was getting ready to happen, the judgment that was getting ready to come upon Jerusalem in 70 AD and everything that was going back then and Gehenna passages and Hades. Once you get into all those language issues and you understand the Greek word aeon or uh, the Greek word colossus for judgment and the possibilities there, I, I think that that I can I can answer the scriptural objections um, as well with Christian universalism or better than any other theological position I've attempted to defend because all theological positions end up having problem scriptures that you have to work with. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of my, my answer to that. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, really great stuff. And I, I feel like we're, um, we're entering into some, some really important and intricate terrain. And I, I actually, I, I'm wondering if maybe we should, um, depends on how much time you have, but I'm wondering if maybe we should take a quick break. Um, yeah, I have plenty and, of time. Okay. And then, okay. Okay. And then we could kind of come back and maybe, cause it seems like you have a lot of material in response to some of these critiques. So I think it'd be, it'd be interesting and informative for our listeners if we went over those with a little bit of a, um, uh, finer tooth comb is that the saying yeah um, well i think that these i think that there are some legitimate questions and i'm happy to go yeah i have time to go through i have i have plenty of time to talk about all of this and to go through as with uh, as much as i can on these yeah things. sure sure yeah okay well let's take a let's take a quick break then if that's all right and then we can come back mm-hmm. 